The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. My name is Jackson, and our reading today comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for that, Jackson. It is a, it's a calming thing indeed, isn't it, when uh, a young voice gets up to read such a threatening passage of Scripture. I hope you feel threatened by what was just read, because you should. We all should, but the beauty is that when the gospel threatens us, it also removes the threat. And that's what I hope happens this morning. We are uh, on number two of a three-part series uh, on politics, and today's subject is how would Jesus vote? And if you're looking for the answer to that question in what Bible-believing Christians are doing, it gets a little bit confusing, because even in our city of Nashville, Bible-believing Christians in some neighborhoods are 90% going in one direction, and Bible-believing Christians in some other neighborhoods are 72% going in the other direction. In the past week, I have received more advice, more essays, uh, more opinions than I have combined in the last year from people who wish to opine on my sermon before I preach it. And that's okay. Some of those people, most of those people are from different places. Some of those people are from our church. And uh, to the latter, I would say that it's a, it's a positive because it indicates that you care. The reason why God sent Jesus into the world was because he so loved the world. And when we get intense about particular visions for the flourishing of the world, uh, at least in part, that, that's, that's our own connectivity to God who so loves the world, and we want to see a flourishing world. It's also encouraging because in our own church, I'm getting these opinions and these essays and these words of advice from people on the political left and from people on the political right in our own community, which to me is also encouragement because it represents a fulfillment of the vision that we say we have to be as broadly inclusive as Jesus is uh, in, in terms of who experiences belonging 
in our community. So my goals today are two simple goals. The first goal is that every Christian either walks out of here or to the many of you who are viewing this in your living rooms or listening to it on a podcast, that you will walk away from messages like this one with a fixed hope on Jesus that far exceeds your hope on election outcomes. That's first. And then the second goal is that you will walk away feeling more at home with people who share your faith but not your politics than you do with people who share your politics but not your faith. Those are a couple of strong indicators of health when we engage political discussions. And so I've got three points today to to help us toward those two goals. The first is why partisans don't like Jesus. And when I say Jesus, I mean the real Jesus, the full, comprehensive, uh, unedited, unrevised Jesus as the scriptures present him to be and as he presents himself to be. We can all make up our own versions of Jesus and we can all turn him into a mascot for our party. But I'm talking about the Jesus who won't be a mascot for anybody's party. I'm talking about the Jesus who is Lord. What we've got here, oh, by the way, point number two, how should Christians vote? Point number three, how would Jesus vote? So point number one, why partisans don't like Jesus? We see this played out in in this episode where we've got a bipartisan effort of two parties, the Herodians and the Pharisees, who hate each other. And the one thing they share in common is that they hate Jesus more than they hate each other. The real Jesus. The one who won't be a mascot for either of their parties. The Herodians and Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him a question in hopes that he will incriminate himself. And the question is, should your disciples pay taxes to Rome or not? And if he says yes, That means he's no true religious leader because he doesn't have the backbone, he doesn't have the courage, he doesn't have the the conviction to speak truth to power and to be a true leader and a true king. But if he says, no, my disciples shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then he uh, sets himself up as a criminal and an enemy of the state and likely execution. We see that they are, what, what motivates them in verse 18? It says there's malice in their hearts. That's the one thing that unites these two diametrically opposed political parties. They have malice in their heart or contempt in their heart toward Jesus. Why is this the case? Well, I I need to give a little bit of background or provide a little bit of background on who the Pharisees were politically and who the Herodians were politically. The Pharisees, you could call them the moral purity party. They were the ones who held to traditional conservative values. And uh, they had a very difficult time thriving as citizens of Rome while also being true to their moral values. In fact, they resented Rome. They also resented the, the history of the Herodian family. Herod the Great, who uh, you'll see in Matthew chapter 2, Herod the Great issues a decree because of rumors about a young child who was born and the, the Jews were saying, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the King of Israel? And because of those rumors, Herod issues a decree 
to terminate every male child in the region age two and under, to kill them. And so it, it really takes a deep hatred for Jesus, for Pharisees to unite with Herodians because many of these Pharisees have the memory of their own children and their own grandchildren being terminated by Herodian power. So they hate Rome. They hate what Herod stands for. Some of the things that Herod and Rome stand for at the time, sexual immorality, infanticide. If a child was born a girl with a disability or with a special need, it was, it was quite possible, if not probable, that that child would be aborted, not before birth, but after birth. They didn't have the technology to see what was going on in the womb back then, and, and so they waited until after the child was born to decide whether or not the child was going to live. Those were brutal, brutal realities in the Roman Empire. Also, religious discrimination. If, if your declaration was Yahweh is Lord or Jesus is Lord, that, that, that was interpreted by the Roman state as rebellion against the government because every Roman citizen was required to declare and live as if Caesar was Lord. On their money, on this coin, the, this tax-paying coin, the denarius that they're talking about here, is a declaration that Caesar is Lord, that he's God, that he's, he's the high priest of our Roman society. And so the Pharisees were at great odds, and taxes especially were a deep sore spot for the Pharisees because they were being forced to fund a system that contradicted their moral values and that denied their religious freedom to them including their free speech. So a little bit more history. 25 years prior to this, a man named Judas the Galilean, who was greatly respected by most Pharisees at this time, uh, staged a revolt or a revolution uh, in hopes to overthrow the Roman requirement that Jewish people in particular had to pay taxes. Because according to Judas and his followers, Judas the Galilean and his followers, different than the Judas the disciple, according to him and his followers, it was not right for any Jew to pay taxes to Rome because God and God alone was their king. Well, guess what happened to Judas the Galilean and his followers? They got executed. They got terminated. But just like maybe a William Wallace from Braveheart even though they, they put Judas to death, his legacy continued and it formed into a political party or a political faction called the Zealots. And the Zealots held on to the notion and to the dream that one day when Messiah comes, Messiah will overthrow this Roman government and we won't have to pay taxes or tithes to anyone but God alone. So that's a little bit of background on the Pharisees. The Herodians were tyrannical oppressors. You wouldn't dare cross them, and if you did, you would pay. You would pay like Judas the Galilean and his followers once paid, or if you even just go to chapter 14 of Matthew's Gospel, we see that, that John the Baptist speaks truth to power. 
to Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great, who put all the children to death. And, and, and John the Baptist speaks truth to Herod Antipas and says, your marriage is illegitimate. You stole another man's wife. You committed adultery with her. This is wrong. And eventually, you can read the story yourself, John the Baptist's head was handed to Herod and his wife on a platter. They were very violent, tyrannical leaders when in power. And so both of these parties hate Jesus. And, and the irony is, even though they, they hate each other so much, they are completely united on why they hate Jesus, why they hold malice in their heart toward the real Jesus. It's because he's politically incorrect in the way that he handles the truth of God with respect to both parties. Politically incorrect with respect to the way that he handles the truth of God with respect to both parties. In verse 16, Pharisees and Herodians unite in saying this to Jesus. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now, this is what you call passive-aggressive flattery. This is not a, a sincere compliment of any sort. It's a passive-aggressive setup statement before their gotcha question. He teaches the word of God truthfully, and then they say to him, we know you do not care about anyone's opinion. We know that you are not swayed. Now the subject or the subtext here is we know that you don't care about our opinions. And we know that you're not swayed at all by our political platforms. And it's true. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, those familiar words from Jesus, you remember them? He said it over and over again. You've heard that it was said. But I say to you, what he's doing there is he is exposing the Pharisees' incorrect, self-serving interpretation of Scripture. They're interpreting Scripture to bias and privilege and empower their own party, their own viewpoint, their own perspective, their own platform. And Jesus says, you've, you've heard it said by the Republicans... Or you've heard it said by the Democrats, you've heard them use scripture this way, but I say to you, bringing the full authority of his kingship as author and perfecter of faith, discrediting the Pharisees, discrediting the Pharisees' teaching. And then if you go one chapter to the right of this one, you'll see Jesus just piling on to the Pharisees, just letting them have it. You are... You are sons of Satan. You are whitewashed tombs. You are a valley of dead man's dry bones. You are hypocrites. You're hypocrites. You're sons of Satan. You don't love God. You only pretend to love God for your own purposes. So they don't like him. And then, possibly with memory of Herod Antipas's father, Herod the Great trying to exterminate him as he exterminated the rest of the boys in the region age two and under some years ago. Jesus refers to Herod Antipas as that fox. You go tell that fox. And, and without context, we might assume that Jesus is saying, oh, he's saying that Herod Antipas is clever and crafty. But the truth is that what Jesus is doing is he's insulting Herod Antipas. 
To call somebody a fox was to identify them with an unclean animal. Herod Antipas is an unclean animal, as far as Jesus is concerned. So it's no wonder why both parties hate Jesus. He's politically correct in both, or he's politically incorrect in both directions. He punches left and he punches right. He speaks truth to power, and they see it as a problem. But this, this is the dynamic, by the way, for, for those who render themselves to God. The word render means to give yourself holy. Give, the, give Caesar's coin holy to him. Give him all the tax that he's asking for. And give your whole self to God. When we give our whole selves to God, when, when you are God's person, it means you also will be nobody's mascot. You will be nobody's puppet. You'll be respectful because that's what Christians do. You'll be an honoring person. You will give an answer for the hope that you have in you, always with gentleness and respect, because that's what Christians do. That's part of how Christians are counterculture. But you will also be your own person in that you will at times speak truth to power. And when you speak truth to power, Self-serving power will find it intolerable and will look for some way to cancel you or exterminate you, whatever the limits of the law will allow and maybe even sometimes beyond the limits of the law. There's a British ethicist named James Mumford, and he came up with this phrase, and the phrase is package deal ethics. And, 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 and package deal ethics is the way that Mumford, no, he's not one of Mumford and Sons, uh, he, the way that he described package deal ethics was he said that the nature of partisan politics is that you will always lose favor with a party if you don't embrace 100% of the party's platform. So one of my friends who lives in the Washington, D.C. area is a rising star in the Democratic Party. And once I asked him, do, do you think you'll ever run for the Senate? Or do you think you'll ever run for president? And his answer was, that will never happen. And I said, why? Do you not want to lead in that way? And he said, no, it's not about that. He said, I could never run for the Senate or for president as a Democrat because I am unequivocally pro-life with respect to the unborn. I don't embrace the full package. I embrace a lot of the package, but I don't embrace the full package. And there are a couple of other things on the platform I don't embrace because I'm a Christian. Same thing happened to C. Everett Koop, Republican appointee to Surgeon General under Ronald Reagan. When he uh, took initiative from his position to, uh, to seek a cure for the HIV AIDS, AIDS virus when it was suspected that only gay men could get the disease and, and his own party were saying, you know, that's not a Republican concern, that's a Democratic concern. What, what are you doing? And so he lost favor with his own party because he didn't, he didn't embrace the full package deal. And that's, what, that's what's happening with Jesus and the Herodians and Pharisees. He's, he's not a party guy. He's not a party guy. The Herodians are secular humanists who want to eliminate Jesus because he won't worship Caesar. Because he won't give his ultimate loyalty to Caesar, they want to eliminate Jesus. The Pharisees are the theocratic nationalists. 
who want to eliminate Jesus because Jesus won't eliminate Caesar. You see? What the Pharisees have always hoped for was the same thing that Judas the Galilean had hoped for. That when Messiah comes, he'll be a military guy. He will chiefly be a political guy and he will chiefly overturn the power the powers of the world with power. He will play the Nietzschean will to power game. He will play social Darwinianism better than Herod or any other Caesar, and he will win through violence. That's all they knew. What they wanted was for Jesus the Galilean to finish the job that 25 years ago Judas the Galilean was unable to finish. But Jesus comes in and he says, that's just not me. My most powerful weapon is the non-retaliatory kind. My most powerful weapon is that I give grace to undeserving people. My most powerful weapon is that I forgive people who do not deserve to be forgiven. You see that playing out as Jesus is, is being mobbed. You know, Judas betrays Jesus and then a whole mob of people come to capture Jesus and then send him to the cross. And Peter decides he's going to pull out his sword and start fighting the way that Judas the Galilean once fought. And he cuts off a man's ear, a man named Malchus. And Jesus says, Peter, that's not how we fight. That, that, that's not how I fight. You ever seen me carry a sword, Peter? You ever seen me pull a knife on somebody? This is not working. You're undermining my cause. You're undermining my kingdom. And then what Jesus does is he, he heals the ear of the man who is participating in sending him to the cross. His message is this. Peter, it's not his blood, but it's my blood that's going to end the violence. So that's his weapon. And he also has a different kind of rule. The way that Jesus rules is not through military force, not through military dominance, but through mercy. You know, John the Baptist, before he was beheaded, he was in prison for speaking against Herod's illegitimate marriage and adultery. And John was discouraged in prison and he sent word through a messenger to Jesus, are, are you the Messiah that we were expecting? Are you the one we were hoping for? Or should we look for someone else? And Jesus sends message back to John the Baptist, who is also his cousin, and says to the messenger, go tell John that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That's how I rule. I rule through mercy, not through might. In fact, my mercy is my might. So that's why partisans don't like Jesus. He's nobody's mascot. He's nobody's puppet. He's not a party guy. He's politically incorrect toward every party. So how should Christians vote? Jesus answers this by, by using the word render. Render unto God 
what belongs to God. To render again is to give the whole thing. You know, Caesar's image is on the coin, God's image is on you, so, so render all of yourself, in, in, including whatever you do in a voting booth or with your voice or with your social media accounts, render it all to God. What does that mean for how we would vote? Okay, so I'm going to try to get practical here. First, vote for your neighbor. Vote for your neighbor. Philippians chapter 2 says, do nothing from selfish ambition. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And as you vote with your neighbor in mind, especially have in mind the poor and the weak. So Nicholas Walter Storff is a biblical scholar out of Yale University, and he wrote a book a few years ago called Justice. And in, in that book, he coins the phrase, the quartet of the vulnerable. Four vulnerable parties that are spoken of in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 10. Party number one, the widow. Think of Think of the widow, think, think, of, think of women raising children without the help of a husband or a father to the children. Think of elderly women who are alone and stranded and isolated. Think of women who are lacking the family support that they need to thrive. Secondly, think of the orphan. That's the second one in the quartet. The orphan represents all children at risk, unborn children, children with special needs and disabilities, children who lack parental support in one way, shape, or form. The third is the immigrant. That represents all people who are seeking asylum, especially from oppressive conditions such as starvation, violence, and persecution. The alien and the stranger in your midst are your responsibility as Christians. And then the fourth of the quartet that Zechariah mentions and Walter Storff amplifies is the poor. And that, that essentially consists of all other vulnerable parties in the world, especially those who lack resources, who lack opportunity, and who lack access. You know, Jesus' very first public sermon, you could call it his inaugural speech or his inaugural address, as king, was in Luke chapter 4, and he's, he chose a text from Isaiah that says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to, to you know, take care of the brokenhearted, to, to, to loosen the chains of the oppressed, and so on. That's his very first sermon, you guys. So your vulnerable neighbor, first and foremost, in your mind. Secondly, vote for moral health, for moral health. As Proverbs 14 says, righteousness exalts a nation. What do we mean by moral health? Well, I think one really helpful essay out there is an essay called How to Vote Christianly. You can Google it, How to Vote Christianly. It's by an Australian Anglican minister named John Dixon. And... Here's one of the things that he says in that essay. He says, Christians in a pluralistic society, by the way, that's, that's our society. We're not a the theocratic society governed by Christians. We are a plur pluralistic society. And what a pluralistic society is, 
is a society in which there is the free exchange of ideas, the free exchange of philosophies, the free exchange of religious beliefs, with the deeply held belief that the best ideas and the best vision and the best philosophies and the best uh, principles and values will rise to the top and cause the tide to rise for everyone. It's like a free market of ideas, you could say. That's the society we live in. And here's how Dixon describes a pluralistic society. He says, Christians in a pluralistic society are not prophets preaching to Israel. They are cheerful guests at a dinner party. I love that phrase. It's so clarifying. This is not our home. This world is not our home. Never has been. Never will be. Read Hebrews chapter 11. It says that none of the heroes of the faith received the full promise. None of them received utopia. None of them received the perfect society in their lifetime. But it says that was okay with them because they were looking ahead to a better country whose architect and builder is God. They were looking ahead to the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth where Jesus would make all things new, where his kingship would no longer be subtle, but it would be overt, explicit, and comprehensive. And we still await that better country. So we are cheerful guests at a dinner party, and what our goal is, and what our role in society is, Dixon says, is to persuade other guests on behalf of the good, but without any air of entitlement. It's a lot like Peter says, Contend for your faith, and as you do, do it with gentleness and respect. Love your neighbor. Love even your enemy. Bless even those who persecute you, Jesus said. And John Dixon goes on, Christians should promote values that are applauded by the Creator, the values of justice, harmony, sexual responsibility, honesty, family, and mercy. This also means prioritizing concerns like abortion, euthanasia, treatment of asylum seekers, gender issues, care for the elderly, and add the disabled and minority groups. Then he goes on and says, for the Christian, moral health far exceeds economic prosperity as an honorable goal. You have to choose between the moral health of a society and the economic flourishing, go with moral health. Now, many would argue that both support each other in, in, in different ways. You can always love Jesus and moral health at the same time. You can't always love Jesus and money at the same time. In fact, you can never love Jesus and money at the same time. And so, so we promote healthy, robust economies to serve another goal. Not to serve materialism and greed, but to serve the flourishing of society and of industry and of people groups. Thirdly, vote with your life. When he says, render yourself to God, he's saying your whole self. And subtly here, what this means for American voters is that your vote is not, is not the, the sum total of your Christian engagement. In fact, it's only a sliver of your Christian engagement. And in fact, your vote might actually contradict your Christian engagement in some ways because things are so complicated in a climate like ours. Your vote is like a pill that has side effects. So 
my doctor prescribed to me a wonderful little pill a few years ago called Lipitor. I had high cholesterol and Lipitor has successfully and immediately drove down my bad cholesterol and it sustained a level of healthy you know, cholesterol in my system. And yet, the pill has had a side effect for me. It's given me muscle pain and, and, you know, sort of nerve shoots and stuff like that. And so what I've had to do in order to counter the side effects is take another pill called CoQ10. So your life is the CoQ10 for your vote. You following me? What your, what your vote fails to do for the kingdom, and your vote, you're, you're voting the way you are as a Christian, because you believe that going in this direction is going to promote a better world in this way, in this way, in this way. It's going to have healing effects. It's going to drive the bad cholesterol in the world down. And yet, if you're awake, if you're honest, you know that that vote is also going to cause some side effects if the platform gets its way. If the, if the package deal gets its way, you know your vote is going to hurt the world as well. It's going to cause muscle pain out there. Your life is the countermeasure. Your calling is to support nonprofits that your party hurts, or for people groups that, that, that your party hurts, to use your voice, to use your social media, to do whatever you can to contradict not only the injustices of the other party, but also of your own. This is where I might lose a few friends. I believe that the loudest lament over the plight over the vulnerable unborn in America should come from Christian Democrats. I believe that the loudest lament on behalf of children at the border who are separated from their parents should come from Christian Republicans. We ought to lament. It's Jesus' logs and specs teaching. We ought to lament the failure of our own tribe more than the failure of some other tribe in order to have integrity. In other words, you got to be your own person. In other words, you got to be politically correct, uh, incorrect in your own party, in your own political circles sometimes. It's part of the cost of discipleship. Here's what happens when we follow the whole Jesus. It's going to take those who've been living their lives on, on one partisan edge or another, and it's going to push them toward the middle on causes. And they're going to be passionate advocates from the middle. But if you're in the mushy middle where you don't take a stand for anything, where, where, where you have no prophetic you know, impulse to your life, Jesus is going to push you to the radical edges, but to both radical edges. You're going to advocate for every just left-leaning cause and for every just right-leaning cause that intersects with the kingdom vision of Jesus. That's your package deal. That's the package deal that Jesus gives you to work with, is the best of the right, the best of the left, and the best of everything else that neither is accomplishing and also to confront the worst in both. Finally, vote for conditions that advance the gospel. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 4. Pray for us that God may open a door for our message so we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Now, what Paul is saying is that the most important thing in the world right now and always is that people convert to Christ. 
is that people's lives are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that people receive the weapon of Jesus, which is his non-retaliatory forgiveness, that they receive that weapon into their hearts. And instead of killing them, it makes them alive. And that people surrender to his rule, which is not chiefly a military or political rule, but a rule of mercy. It means you become poor in spirit. Now, what are the best conditions for the advance of the gospel? Now, that's debatable. Because if you look at history, societies in which the government has been friendly to Christianity has been the poorest climate for gospel advancement. And societies that have been hostile to Christianity has been actually the best climate for the advancement of the gospel. Even look at China today. Look at Brazil. Look at other places where, where, where there's persecution against Christian believers. That's where the church is most alive. That's where conversions are happening in the greatest number. It's always been that way. And so, so what are you saying, Scott? Are you saying that we should vote for an anti-Christian society? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that of the four criteria, this is the one that we can most freely let go. And, 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 and not fear that Jesus will lose any ground. Even if Christians lose political ground, Jesus will lose no ground, and he actually might gain some ground. You never know. But religious freedom as we understand it, it is a nice luxury, but it's not essential for the gospel to thrive. Now finally, drumroll, how would Jesus vote? I'm going to be really quick with this one. Jesus votes in two ways. First, he votes for you. He's a bipartisan savior. It should not be lost on us that the author of this very text and the author of this very gospel is Matthew, who collects taxes for the Roman Caesar. And we should, it should also not be lost on us and I'm going to keep repeating this until it sinks in. It should not be lost on us that Matthew and Matthew alone, as he lists all of the names of the disciples in chapter 10, you know, he says, you know, there's, there's Simon Peter, there's, there's John, there's Thaddeus, there's Nathaniel, there's Thomas. And then he names the, the, the political affiliation, strangely, of two disciples himself there was Matthew, the tax collector, that's Matthew 10, 3. And there was Simon, the zealot, 10, 4. Simon, the zealot, the Pharisee sympathizer. And Matthew, the tax collector, who collected taxes, including from Simon, for the Roman Caesar. Both were chosen by Jesus Christ as disciples, as apostles, as his deputies in the world. So he votes for us. He also votes for himself. When, when, you know, this word render means give everything to God. Give everything that you are to God. And when you're his person, you'll become your own person. And when you're his person, you will, like Jesus, speak the way of God truthfully. No more political spin in your vernacular. As Matthew, I can't remember the language you used in your setup for the prayer, but it was great. Like there's all kinds of 
of, of crazy untruth-telling in, in our political dialogue. We edit things, we, we leave certain things out, we amplify other things, and, and we just lie in order to get our way. But there's no more of that for Christians. We speak the way of God truthfully. And we don't care about human opinions anymore. And we're not easily swayed except by the scriptures. And we test everything by what the scriptures say. So there's going to be more on this next week. How, how do we flesh it out? And uh, what I told the earlier service, I'll tell you as well. I've already written the sermon for next week. Because you know what? It doesn't matter who wins on Tuesday or, you know, in March 2021 or whenever they decide it. It doesn't matter. The message will be the same. I hope you will join me for that as well. But for right now, what we get to do is now join the likes of Matthew, the tax collector for Rome, and Simon the zealot, who didn't believe in taxes at all, at the Lord's table. When Jesus broke bread, they were both seated there, receiving the bread and the cup. And so that's what we'll do now. But before that, will you please stand with me, and we will confirm our faith, reading a wonderful confession that points to the belonging that we all have, not in a political party, but the belonging that we have with Jesus Christ. This is from the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the belonging that you provide on one basis and one basis alone, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, whose primary weapon is non-retaliation and forgiveness, and whose rule is not chiefly military or political, but merciful. We receive that now, even as we limp to your table along with Mephibosheth, whose story was so beautifully and eloquently told last Sunday by Dr. Paul Lim. Lord, thank you that what King David said to Mephibosheth, you, you say to us as well in our limp, there will always be a place for you, Matthew and Simon and everyone in between at the table of the Lord's grace. For this, we thank you. And we ask that you would set apart this cup and this bread. Feed us physically, feed us spiritually, strengthen us in these truths that you have preached to us today from Matthew 22, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated.